Time now for another edition of Downing Street Diaries, where Dr. Dara Gannon of University College Dublin joins us to talk about the ongoing treaty negotiations in London a century ago. Dara is also the author of a forthcoming volume from Cambridge University Press, Conflict, Diaspora and Empire, Irish Nationalism in Great Britain, 1912 to 1922. Uh, Last week, we talked about the beginning of the negotiations and discussed a little bit about the, the personalities involved. Bring us up to speed, first of all, of what was happening in the two weeks from the around about the 11th, 12th of October up to this point, around the 31st of October. So the the negotiations got off to somewhat of a slow start in the sense of the first few days beginning on the 11th of October 1921. Both sides are really feeling each other out. And Arthur Griffith essentially was trying to delay the um, discussion of serious issues such as empire, constitutional status and Ulster because they were waiting on de Valera and the Dáil cabinet to send forth the full draft proposal called Draft Treaty A from the Irish side. So there was an element in week one of delaying tactics on the part of Arthur Griffith. And this actually led to a somewhat inauspicious commentary from David Lloyd George, in which he talked about the delegates being impossible people. They come to the point, but rarely come to a decision. And he characterised Arthur Griffith, who he saw as the leader, uh, as someone who had no power of expression. Uh, He said he spoke rather like a clever, incoherent Welshman. So um, there was a a little bit of stalling in in week one. Griffith was, on the other hand, very impressed by Lloyd George's personal styles, the Welsh wizard, as he was known, um, but found him very ignorant in his own terms of the understandings of Ulster. And so there was an element of of sparring in those first two weeks getting to know each other. However, things took a dramatic turn, essentially, from the 19th of October. So there were seven plenary sessions between the 11th and 24th of October in which all of the negotiating personnel were involved. But from the 19th of October, there were external pressures which really changed the dynamics of the negotiations. And this began when Pope Benedict XV sent a telegram to King George V welcoming the negotiations and hoping for peace. George V's reply, however, indicated that this was an internal Irish issue. Troubles in Ireland was the term that he used. And this caused Eamon de Valera all the way back in Dublin to write a rebuttal publicly on the 21st of October, disavowing this idea of an internal Irish issue, asserting that Ireland was a separate, independent nation. Interesting that you should say that Lloyd George saw Griffith as the leader of the delegation because in the hundred years or so that has passed, I think Collins, to some extent, in the minds of Irish people and Irish historians, has kind of overtaken uh, Griffith. If that did happen, did that happen during the negotiations or is that just a kind of an ex post facto gloss that we've tended to put on it because Collins is a far more charismatic figure than Arthur Griffith? That's an excellent point, Miles, because I think the, the kind of cult of Collins, so to speak, has certainly overtaken the history of which we speak. There was an element even contemporaneously that the leaders saw Collins as something of an emerging political leader, while Griffith took over the um, negotiations per se. Collins drafted a, a document with the support of Erskine Childers about Ireland's military defences and providing safeguards for Britain. And Churchill, of all people, called it a remarkable document uh, and spoke glowingly of Collins in that respect. 
effect. So there was a sense that Collins was a developing political leader intellectually, but Griffith led the negotiations. And of course, they would become a tandem, really, in the British political mind henceforth. Now, what were then the first Irish proposals for a new relationship with Britain? So the Irish proposals arrive on the 24th of October, sent over by the Dáil Cabinet, and this was the putative draft Treaty A. And as before, the negotiations had kind of stalled over some of the details of finance, trade, um, security and so on. This was the first time the British were somewhat aware of what the red lines, so to speak, of the Irish positions were. And they essentially were, it was essentially a six point document. And the most important aspect of this was that the Irish Republic was not mentioned explicitly in this proposal, which was signed off by the entire cabinet in Dublin. Rather, they used the term external association. And this was an idea developed by Eamon de Valera earlier in the summer and somewhat agreed to by hardliners like Brewer and Stack, which ostensibly would maintain Irish independence in the form of an Irish Republic, but which would voluntarily associate that Irish Republic with the British Empire. Almost like a maths equation where the Irish Republic was tangential at a certain point to the British Empire. And de Valera was, of course, a mathematician by trade. And this, in many ways, has gone down in the history books as a gross error or misjudgment or miscalculation because it failed. But in many ways, it was perhaps the only solution to those competing ideas of empire and Irish Republic, the symbology which is so uh, important and integral to the negotiations at that time. And the Irish delegation presented this on the 24th of October and they presented it again on the 29th of October as the bottom line of the Irish negotiating position. British response to draft Treaty A, what was it? They were confused somewhat by what this meant in terms of were the Irish coming into the empire or not. And Lloyd George and Churchill tried to corner Griffith and Collins primarily on this issue of empire and loyalty to the British crown. uh, Lloyd George asked, for example, will you be uh, citizens or aliens within the United Kingdom. And what's interesting in terms of draft Treaty A, in terms of later history, and again, this is the 24th of October, 1921, very early on, is that there was no mention of an oath of allegiance in the draft Treaty A by the Dublin cabinet. And when Griffith wrote to de Valera on the 24th of October, advising that the British were essentially trying to pigeonhole them into an oath, de Valera wrote back in some strenuous terms stating that we can have no oath of allegiance and if we must face war, we will do so. This caused uproar in the Irish delegation. They wrote a letter in which they all signed off a day later, rebuking de Valera's intrusion in their powers as plenipotentiaries and asking him if he wished to negotiate to come over now to negotiate in London rather than dictating terms from Dublin. This is very interesting because the suspicion is that, you know, on on the one hand, you would have Republicans saying that the delegation is already starting to go go native, as it were. Um, uh, The delegation, I suppose, themselves would say that they are more au fait with the realities of the situation. But is there already drift taking place between Dublin and London, you know, Irish Dublin and Irish London, if you like. You put it perfectly. London, Ireland and Dublin, Ireland are two very different dynamics right now in this last week of October. Um, Collins and Griffith, and we'll talk about this in future weeks, are already seeing that there is a clear differential between 
the kind of politics at home. And again, there's no pressure in Dublin in the sense of they're not meeting in these gruelling negotiations. They're almost dictating in terms of high politics, the idealism of the Republic. Collins and Griffith uh, primarily are negotiating in the hard politics of you know, what does empire mean? What does our sovereignty mean? And trying to convey this idea of external association, which they may not believe in themselves, but they're still trying to communicate this. And their best player, the, the football analogy is often used by De Valera, held in reserve as a substitute, is dictating these, you know, symbolic terms from a distance. Whereas they're hard pressed in close negotiations with Lloyd George, Churchill and Birkenhead. So London, Ireland and Dublin, Ireland are now growing apart. I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but to what extent does draft treaty A become de Valera's document number two, which he uh, produces during the, the treaty debates? Constitutionally, they are very similar. Again, the premise is external association. And if you look at the treaty debates, and again, we are jumping forward a little bit in um, early 1922, when de Valera tries to press this alternative to the treaty, it's met with just derision on the part of even hardline Republicans who see it as no essential difference. So there is a clear line between the hardline Republicans led by Cahill Brewer, Austin Stack in, in the Dáil, and De Valera, who he even says in August of 1921, he's not a doctrinaire Republican. And there is an element of De Valera playing both sides of the field here, going back to that sporting analogy. So the uh, negotiations are off to a rocky start in October of 1921. And the 24th of October, this moment when external association is submitted, is the final day in which all of the Irish plenipotentiaries meet in a plenary session with the British team. Henceforth, they will meet in subcommittees. And from now on, it's the Collins and Griffith show. Dara Gannon, thank you very much indeed once again for joining us for another edition of your Downing Street Diaries and we'll catch up with you. We'll catch up with the negotiations again in another few weeks. Mm-hmm.